Okay, I assume you're not going to use these actual recordings for your podcasty. So I'm just going to um, talk normal. From the Clock Tower at Mountain Air, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to our book club. We're fans of C.S. Lewis, not experts, and we're glad you're here with us. Today we are talking about our experiences after reading all of the Chronicles of Narnia. Kind of exciting, but also we'll still be spoiling like we always do. So if you haven't read, there's lots of podcasts to lead and guide you through seven books of Narnia. Yeah, I don't think we have time to spoil everything in this episode, (laughs) but we will be spoiling still. Um, And next week, we're going to start with the Space Trilogy, and that begins with Out of the Silent Planet. And just like before, we're doing chapters one through seven. Cool. I'm excited. All right, so any housekeeping minutes for our book club? morning i just listening to the episodes it's tricky to listen to your own voice we've talked about this before and it's hard not to be just so critical of everything everything that i say i feel like is eye rollable yeah there's some times where i say things and even night i know i'm like that's not true (laughs) you know why did i say that uh one thing that like is just coming to mind right now i i said fantasy in one of the episodes when i meant fairy tale i mean that's nitpicky sometimes i'm saying stuff that's like like, I don't even believe what, you know, but going back to our, our horse and his boy episodes, we were talking about Mercury and, and having like that, uh, understanding conversational style, being free to say silly things. I don't want to get too self-judgmental about that because I think being free to say silly things, it's almost like those mistakes are the price that I'm paying for saying anything worthwhile. And also... Although we make this publicly available, I have a feeling only our friends are going to stick around. <laughs> so everyone here is going to be a little bit free. That's true. I think a lot of the hesitance to participate is the same nerves that we're feeling when we're on the mic. Yeah. It's difficult to put yourself out there. And we understand that. We definitely appreciate that because that's what we're experiencing. And if you got any other impression from our conversation that we were anything but shaken in our boots, that's been a ruse <laughs> yeah, yeah and for everybody that uh went out on a limb for our first book club member podcast and sent in recordings that we're going to be listening to today thank you it is it's super exciting and fun for us to listen to your comments we're excited to talk about them and hear those today and hopefully you'll see it's cool to see the different way that people approached how they listen to the book club and how they're going through the material And uh, we'll see different formats of that. And so hopefully in future episodes when we do similar stuff, you can see there's not a right way here. It's we want whatever you bring to the table. So thank you. And if it seems like we're being extra critical of ourselves because it sounds like we're speaking pretty fluidly and clearly, that's because we've had a lot of help from our producer, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Who has edited out most of our fillers, ums, and likes and helped keep things at least conversationally fluid cohesive and less cringy to listen to now they know we're a fake (laughs) (laughs) yeah most people are i guess i don't know it's fine okay so summary and themes it looks like you've got a couple a couple quotes here and things you'd like to share before we dive into kind of specific moments from our book club members yeah if you ever do a deep dive into c.s lewis read some of his biographies if you're familiar with his life and uh, people's criticisms of him and also praise of him, 
there's a lot of questioning why he wrote these books when he did. These were late in his uh, career as an author. In fact, when we go into the Space Trilogy, those were written before the Narnia series. And so a lot of the thoughts haven't been in, in the Space Trilogy haven't been really worked out that well. Actually, I mean, they're worked out just fine, but not as well as he would like them. And then they kind of come into a m much more enjoyable and cohesive version. That's why the books don't have to be so long, is he gets to the point and gets the message very concisely, very clearly. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien thought he like just <laughs> threw them together too quickly. But I think that was almost intentional and obviously not very true because the more you look into them, the more you realize that these were very well thought out. He knew what he was doing. So that makes me want to ask, and maybe this is a little bit of teaser for what's coming with the Space Trilogy, but do you feel like it's because for him the ideas became clearer and he knew what he wanted to write? Or was it just Space Trilogy is clearly more for an adult audience and so he's able to expand a little bit on the ideas do you feel like it's some of that going on both i think it's i think it's both but i have a quote here for why i think it the space trilogy is fine i'm sure he would have revised it to death because just like us you know he was self-conscious about how good he what he was presenting and this is probably because Jared tolkien one of his closest friends for you know, a lot of his life, they had kind of a falling out even before the Narnia series was written. But he, J.R.R. Tolkien was very critical and he was kind of that friend who was, we, we brought up the character type of like his mentor, Professor Kirkpatrick. Yeah. Uh, Tolkien had kind of that personality. Like he wasn't very tactful and um, not, not that I don't think he was incapable of it, but almost like as a manner, uh, as like a matter of principle. He was just kind of abrasive. Uh, Lewis said that he had started a book for children, which may have been like the first iteration of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The kids have different names, and the main character is actually the youngest is Peter in that version. Hmm. But he said he presented it to his friends, and you can put in parentheses Tolkien. And they detested it so much that C.S. Lewis had no other recourse but to destroy it. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. <laughs> but I don't think that Tolkien was any more charitable about the Narnia series when he actually did publish them. So I think it was more Lewis is becoming a more confident in himself and not so dependent in the approval of some of his more critical friends. There's this uh, idea or quote from G.K. Chesterton that has been taken and, t and turned around and even the opposite has been said several times in different ways. But he says anything that's worth doing is worth doing poorly. And I think that Lewis took that to heart. Like he was so prolific in, in his writing. He just, almost like it was an addiction. Like he wrote and wrote and wrote. And it's it's crazy how much he, he wrote that, what was it? When they, we talked about this before. When, when Warren was uh, destroying his like manuscripts and documents after his death, Walter Hooper said that they had a bonfire going for three days and he only showed up on like the third day to, to get stuff to make sure. Three days? Yeah. So it was, there was a lot of stuff. <laughs> Jeez. And we still just have some scraps and manuscripts. There's a, a unfinished book called The Dark Tower. 
that was written after Out of the Silent Planet and has more of a feel of that hideous strength. And so Paralandra comes in between. And when, when we're reading there, I think you'll appreciate that he did abandon the Dark Tower because it doesn't have the feel. And, and none of those books need the others. to. They're all standalones. They all work by themselves. The characters are just kind of what's common through them. The Dark Tower is a fun read, but it, it doesn't really fit. And it's not something that I, I would even incorporate in this book club. So yeah, he, he wrote a lot, but I do think that he had most of his ideas pretty well formulated by the time he published anything with a Christian twist to it or Christian theme to it. His first book, The Pilgrim's Regress, which he even has is quoted as saying like, he doesn't like it at all. And looking back at it, he's crit- he says he, he does it poorly in the same way that all of the authors that he detests, <laughs> right? So he says like all of his criticisms are specifically focused on the way that he wrote that book. And yet I think that that book, and I ho- we'll get to that book, I think eventually in this podcast, that book is already pretty well distilled into a cohesive philosophy of belief. And even though he doesn't ever really present his philosophy in that ordered way that a lot of primary source philosophy comes you can tell that he's holding himself to that same standard like if you were to read through critique of pure reason by Immanuel kant that is a very structured philosophical presentation and you can follow it and and write out very um clearly what the philosophical assumptions and beliefs of Immanuel kant are i think that c.s lewis had his own philosophy organized in that way, even though he's presenting it to us in a more enjoyable and symbolic fashion. And so that's why when we read through Narnia, it's like, how is he keeping all of this together? And part of that is uh, when Owen Barfield was asked about why, uh, you you mentioned that last name's funny, and now I can't say it without giggling. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, why why C.S. Lewis's Narnia series was so attractive to people, why people loved it. It's like when you read through it, they seem like simple, short books that are just generic fairy tale almost, but that's not people's experience. What is that attractive quality? And it's because it's rooted like we've tried to present in like the cosmological reality, like the Carl Jung archetypes in a way that we all resonate with them and we don't even know why. But what Owen Barfield said was, what Lewis believed about everything was present in what he said about anything. Hmm. What Wittgenstein says is, the work of a philosopher is to assemble reminders for a particular purpose. And that's kind of what I feel like even my own study of like, when, what am I doing when I'm studying or even preparing for these podcasts is I'm getting all these ideas and trying to organize it in a way that I can present it in a way that's understandable. Because so much of our ideas are scattered and our conversations are scattered. And it's kind of like we're, we're cherry picking a little this idea, this idea, this idea. And what the work of a philosopher is to take all of those ideas and, or feelings or, and to organize them in a presentable way. And Lewis does that so well. That's his superpower. And that's what I think Owen Barfield meant by him having everything that he believed organized in a presentable way in whatever he told us. See, that's, that's really interesting because that quote that I was, before we started recording, sorry, audience, we were talking about a quote about why we lose faith. And the first one, C.S. Lewis said, we don't realize we have moods, yeah. so just the human body. But the second one was actually 
that we aren't able to keep it present. And what you're talking about as far as an organizable way, so you actually can look at a framework and keep it present and have a daily reminder of what type of framework you operate into. And I think a lot of times when we have, we'll have moments and experiences, which so often through the Narnia books, things get really clear. And our virtues and our beliefs and, and how we think about the world get really clear. And then, you know, I think a lot of times we get distracted by other things that help us lose that framework. And it reminds me of the silver chair, remembering the signs and keeping those present and repeating them often. Yeah. And, and just referring back to Kant, you could read the critique of pure reason and, and come away with the understanding of the categorical imperative. But even when I try to remember what that is, it's like I have to remember my notes from my philosophy class. And I almost like visualize that, that notebook and how I wrote down each of the bullet points and everything. And it's difficult to remember a story or symbols comes to you and, and speaks to your mind in a way that you can almost feel it before you say it. And that's what these books do for me for understanding difficult problems and concepts that nobody really does have figured out, but he can feel it. And when I'm, you know, it's like if I'm dealing with greed, it's like get myself in the mindset of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and I'll understand it so much better than if I wrote out some philosophical argument or tried to make my own thesis for why what is greed and what it feels like and how to how it expresses itself in my life and and how to be aware of it and and manage it what about you'd mentioned this a little bit before but c.s lewis being able to get over some of that early criticism and put these things into the world uh the quote that he did it because he was writing what he wished existed yeah he says i wrote the books i should have liked to read that's always been my reason for writing people won't write the books i want so I have to do it myself. See, I, I, I really like that. That I think at the end, of the, he was able to get over that criticism because he knew him as an individual. That's what he would have wanted to see in the world. And sometimes I think we have to operate that way with how we put good out into the world, that we have to treat others as we would want to be treated. Write the books that you wish were out there. Put out the content. Have the conversations that you wish people would have with you. I feel like that's what we're trying to do here right is not that there aren't plenty of podcasts i mean what we're we're <laughs> dudes in our late 30s you know it's, it's, it's almost a cliche <laughs> that when you talk to somebody of our demographic it's like you could just guess that they probably have a podcast sort of thing you know so it's we're not we're not being really original here but we're trying to have the conversation that we want to have and we had a lot of these conversations before we started the podcast and i mean you would always joke that it's like okay here's the cs lewis quote that Alex is going to bring up in his conversation with me. And it's like, this is, you wanted to have a lot of the things that you appreciate in me. And I want to have a lot of the things that I appreciate in you. And we kind of get there and become more like each other by having conversations like this and maybe organizing and have it in a more formalized manner. Like we've been doing, it's been really edifying for me. So I'm glad that uh, thank you for doing this. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So like we talked about in the lion, the, the witch in the wardrobe, he, certain observations of children that were coming and staying at his house in the kilns may have been the, the inspiration for writing a book for this group of kids, the Pevensies and Lucy. And maybe there was an, indi an individual, a, a little girl that he observed and kind of was writing to or had that person in mind. 
But when he was writing to his friend Arthur Greaves about one little boy in particular, he says, would you believe it? The child has never been read to. Not that he is neglected. He has a full-time nurse, many patented foods. And I think you could probably, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that <laughs> means, but patented foods might be like processed foods or packaged foods. Yeah. Is spoiled and far too expensively dressed, but his poor imagination has been left without any natural food at all. I often wonder what the children of our present generation will grow up like. They have been treated with so much indulgence, but so little affection. With so much science and so little mother wit. Not a fairy tale nor a nursery rhyme. And, and so obviously he's showing this problem that he's seen in even that generation of, of children. And he'd already addressed that issue in the abolition of man. And, and as we'll see in that hideous strength, that, that idea of like in our in the modernist mindset of materialism, that what it means to be human is to abolish everything that's human about us, the subjectivity of us and the sentimentality of us. Obviously, subjectivity, maybe not the right word because he has an essay about why subjectivity is so problematic. And that's a good one to read, by the way. You can see that there's, there's something that he's trying to fight against, to work against. He's trying to almost, in, in the weight of glory, he says we've been kind of enchanted by our modernism and it's getting rid of all of kind of the more beautiful, enjoyable aspects of life. And you can almost see why people nowadays are so depressed and we, and we don't really appreciate that our hearts are longing for something that's maybe beyond what the material world can provide us. And in the, in that essay, the weight of glory, he says, do you think that I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am but remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as inducing them. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. So I th he does have a reason for writing them, the books. And... I think he's trying to get us out of what the world's pressures of making you think that the world is less than what it is. Right. And he, it, like characters like uncle Andrew, he's, he's a magician, but he's really a mad scientist. He's almost trying to, to dull down, dumb down everything that's magical about the world into something that's so simple and trite that he can manipulate it. And you see that when he's in Narnia or the creation of Narnia, he's worried about how he's going to make money on planting things in the soil of Narnia. And he's like, if only we could get rid of that lion. And he's not appreciating the creation of an entire world. And it takes the cabbie to say, well, hey, be quiet. Watching's what we're supposed to be doing right now, not talking. I feel this to my bones. I'm really glad you shared these quotes because that that enchantment is exactly what I feel like. Not only do do I personally have to push against that and battle against that, but it's probably my number one concern as I think of parenting uh, between the media and what my my kids are exposed to every single day. And I feel like we, you know, they're home a lot. We're fortunate enough where my wife can be there with my kids during the day. And uh, but still, I, I see it creeping in, and I see it creeping in all around us. And uh, I think we have to 
actively, we have to be active participants in reading the fairy tales and reading them stories and teaching these things. It's not, it's not something that they're just going to grasp by themselves and it's, it's going to be smothered out and there, you'll kill the magic, you'll kill the meaning that there is, like you said, the, the greater purpose of this earth and the greater and uh, greater good has too many connotations, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the finding good, uh, we have to fight against it. And so is he weaving his own spell? <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe. But if it's breaking the enchantment. Yeah, it's a, a disenchantment. Thing. I like that. He's not trying to enchant us with fairy tales, but he's showing us through his fairy tales that there's something, there's a part of us that's made for another world. And children, we've talked about this before, children accept the world that's presented to them. And if all we have to present with them is this sterilized, meaningless, almost computer programming style of education, we're not, we're, we're starving them of a large part of what their imagination and what their hearts are craving for. I wonder if you, in the same way that we've read the Narnia series or when we read scripture, and then we try to pull out the meetings and apply it to ourselves, if we did the same thing with our educational system or any other content that we're bringing into our lives and, and try to do the same thing, say, okay, what's the meaning here? Is there an underlining meaning that I'm trying to pull out and apply to myself? I, I think it would be scary. Well, right, and that's the tricky thing that we're you know, participating in right now, are we taking things that are meant to just be enjoyed and putting them too in, too much into the contemplation part of our minds, sterilizing the message for a consumable way or consumable? I, I think I know what, what you're getting at. Let's see if I can uh, think of something else that Lewis said that kind of goes along those lines. He was the president of the Socratic Club at Oxford and... Uh, Anyway, one of the things that he said about that, he said that an, a, a Christian apologist is always putting his life on the line, his faithful life on the line, because he says, no, at no point um, is his faith weakest except or weaker than right after he's successfully defended it. And I think what he meant is when you put something into the argumentative style, you take this feeling or this almost... Uh, ineffable, like this um, story, emotion, cosmological spirit, and you put it into this like communicable way to to convince somebody else about it. It's almost like you've dumbed it down so much that now it's vulnerable to attack of even your own moods or your the state of your digestion. Right. So he was worried about being an apologist. He didn't want to take everything that he believed and loved and put it into this organized uh, conversational argument because that was when it was, it was weak. It was almost like stronger when he was just enjoying, when he was basking in the sunlight. And then when he tried to explain what sunlight was for, to somebody, that's when he could doubt that the sun even exists and when the green witch could convince him it was just a lamp. It reminds me of, of the horse and his boy and the shortfalls of language. Yeah. That when you take something that's greater than the language that we communicate in and are trying to pull it into the English language, it's the same thing. You're trying to take something, like C.S. Lewis is talking about faith here, and pull it into 
an argumentative style that's a construct that exists within the English language yeah. and inevitably weakening it and then now exposing it to a, a type of debate that really at the higher level it probably it isn't really exposed to. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Every every translation to human language is things get lost. Yeah. It's a dumbing down. Yeah. And I think he was worried about that. So how would we help children, our children, get their hearts, feed their hearts with the food of their imagination that they're longing for? And I think it's through the story and a story that's rooted in truth. And that's difficult because we're going to be, you know, what's what's parenting but manipulation? We're going to have to be honest with the fact that, well, I'm manipulating my kids' development. Well, it's either me or it's YouTube or school or <laughs> every other in- influence. It's funny because I have, I have a dog and he's very well behaved. And sometimes people are like, oh, you did you train him? And that's funny. I'm, I'm, as a psychologist, that's a funny question because you're never not training. You're always training, whether you're doing it intentionally or not. Every interaction that you have with a dog, and you could say also with a child or even with each other, we're reinforcing and punishing behaviors. We're practicing behavior manipulation. We could pretend that we're not. Maybe that feel, makes us feel better. But we're never not training. And if it's not us, it'll be something else. Your kids are never not being trained. Well, if, I'm, if, if that's true about them, I want to have the larger influence. It's either me or it's the state. <laughs> Did I betray a little bit of my... <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but I liked it. No. <laughs> right? So yeah, I, your, your kids accept the world that's presented to them. What responsibility do I have to present the world to them? A lot. And I want it to be maybe through these union archetypes or through the story. I want it to be goodness. What's goodness? I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to you necessarily, but I know what it feels like. And if I can saturate myself in goodness enough, that's going to make me a little more trustworthy to present that goodness to my kids. All right, we'll take a break and we'll be back. Welcome back. We're going to start this next section with some of your participation. And uh, you already heard a little snippet of this at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> but this is exactly Hi, what <laughs> yeah, this is exactly what we want as far as participation's going. And uh, let's play the first Sarah voice memo. Okay, I assume you're not gonna act, use these actual recordings for your podcasty. So I'm just going to talk normal. Questions that I've had as I have read and I have not read all of the things that you have read. (laughs) One question I've had throughout the Narnia books when I first read them was, why are some of the characters talking animals? And why are some of the characters humans? And why are some of the characters dwarves? And why are there also normal animals mixed in? Did that have any purpose or was it just... Fun chaos. That was so good. <laughs> That's exactly what we want. Yeah. Right. Do you have any? Do you have an answer for her? First, Sarah, I like your honesty. Yeah. So I'm gonna <laughs> say that I I feel that from you, and so I uh, love that. 
as far as purpose, I don't have a quote from C.S. Lewis where he's speaking to why he designed it this way. But for me, it was educational in the sense it, I think of the last battle when Shift claims he was a human. That was instructional for me that up until that point, the talking beasts were seen as as the same, having the same value as humans in this society of Narnia. And, and then there seemed to be all of a sudden this, there, there was all, a hierarchy was created now. Mm-hmm. I think of when, when it's all about humans and people, I think it's easier for us to, when you get a more homogenous group, it feels like those groups often become more judgmental because there's less to actually judge and distinguish each other from. And so by having talking beasts from the lowest of the mole, when we, I think of the last battle when we talk about that, but uh, to a talking unicorn to a king, it gives so much more diversity to this ecosystem, but still before Aslan, there was sameness. They were treated, if they were a talking beast, if they were a reasoning beast, then they were all called to follow the same good. So there is my opinion on Sarah's question. I think that's great because everything is so, all the differences become so superficial when you're seeing the different species, Yeah, right? That uh, you stop trying to judge on maybe things that aren't within our jurisdiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's this med- medieval book called The Bestiary. And it's kind of funny. I think J.K. Rowling also drew from this or or use this as inspiration for her Fantastic Beasts series. Um, and it's it's medieval in every way. It's kind of funny, laughable. Uh, the each animal is given a reason for the way that they are, and and you can see that there's certain character types that you'll that come go along with the dwarves or that go along with the. I mean, dwarves not an animal, but um, that's more of a Tolkien thing. I I'm, I think. But uh, the, you know, the, the, be- okay, so what's coming to mind? Cause I haven't really read the bestiary, but it's, um, <laughs> so there's the, the, the beaver, the section on the beavers in the bestiary is, gives this behavior that I don't think is true at all, but it explains it like this. So humans hunt beavers for their medicinal, medicinal purposes that can be found in their genitals. And so what a beaver does when the, <laughs> when human, when a hunter comes up to it is it bites off its genitals, throws it toward the human and escapes. And then there's some like explanation of why that shows how the beaver is so smart and uh, like the wisdom of the beaver, which I think is, you can see in the Narn, not the first part. <laughs> Did you want to talk about the weather or are you just making chit chat? <laughs> I don't know where this is going, but I guess we're going here. <laughs> but there's like <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I didn't think I'd be saying genitals <laughs> in this episode. Um <laughs> But yeah, there's so there's like within the if we're going with that medieval theme of like the cosmos. <laughs> Of of the cosmology, um, he's drawing from a lot from that lit- from that literature, that age, and and he's omitting the parts that are a little more d- difficult for our modern sensibilities. <laughs> Thank you. you. Yeah, I appreciate the editing <laughs> from his side, not yours. <laughs> yeah, Mister Beaver is going to hit a little different 
next time you read Mind the Witch in the Wardrobe. Clearly, yes. Um, yeah, but there's there's reasons. So there's reasons behind it. Each and it's and I, probably for a lot of convenience that uh, each animal provides almost a character type, and it's it's done in a way where it's not discriminatory. It's true to their nature. Yeah, and I think that's a that's obviously. I mean, that's really valuable. But there's obviously. Um, a convenience from his own history. He and, and Warren, his brother, they, they, they started, even as little kids, writing their own imaginative worlds. And Warren wrote about India, and C.S. Lewis wrote about Animal Land, and then they brought their worlds together and they called it Boxen. And there's a letter from Warren to, to, to Jack, to C.S. Lewis, that was um, longing, even in their 30s, he was writing, if only we could you know, finish our work on boxing and really continue what we'd started in childhood. And maybe this is C.S. Lewis doing that. Hmm. Cool. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Okay. <laughs> Don't pee. All right. We have Sarah, Sarah comment number two. Okay. I haven't read the Dawn Treader yet. So again, most of my stuff is coming from Prince Caspian. Um, I know you guys talked about Lucy's encounter with Aslan and the um, invisible walking episode. And you, and you definitely explored like Lucy's growth through that. But I was reading um, on page 383, Peter says, and why should Aslan be invisible to us? He never used to be. It's not like him. And when I read that, I was like, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Why did Aslan make himself invisible to them? Like, it's an obvious opportunity for growth and a challenge for Lucy. But like, what did Peter and Susan and Edmund gain out of it? Because, I mean, I don't think he's trying to teach them that they should just believe everything Lucy says and to stop doubting their sister. So like, what's the deeper message there for the other siblings? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to get my mind into the Prince Caspian mindset. I, f I feel like I can see it from a couple different angles. Uh, one, there's that Christ is a very, he, he works with us at a very individual level. And so in that specific experience, each person experienced him the way they needed to experience him to learn what they needed to learn. What thoughts do you have? Well, my mind's because we just finished the last battle, the whole not the, not a tame lion and where, where that doesn't apply and where it does apply. I think it does apply here, right? What's well, the thing that happens to Peter immediately following this trial of his faith, and it's a trial of all their faiths, right? Is he, they come to the rescue of Caspian in the, in Aslan's how, and immediately he reassures Caspian, I'm not here to replace you. And I'm not sure if he felt like he could control Aslan, if he could say, you know, demand that he see him. It's almost like Aslan, by not being visible to him, is saying, you're not in charge here. I am. And so it puts Peter in this yielding state of mind, this subordinate state of mind. He's the high king. Think of how he's referred to through the rest of the entire Chronicles. The high king, almost to the point where it's like, yeah, but I don't really have that much of a relationship with Peter. So 
I'm not like thinking he's the big deal in in Narnia, but think of the mythology that is exists within Narnia. He's he's like the guy. Yeah. And so even when Eustace is giving his justification for taking charge, he says, I'm the brother of the High King. You know, it's always in reference to this character. He's kind of like a Moses of sorts. Where that's where they're saying they have their authority through. And so I think Peter needed to be humbled a little bit. And it, I think it's humbling. It's an appropriate humbling experience to realize, oh, you're subordinate to Aslan. You don't command Aslan. You're, he's not a tame lion. Peter needs to hear that he's not a tame lion. Maybe, maybe the Narnians in the end of the last battle, that's not the message they need to hear. They need to hear that he's a good lion, right? But we all hear the message depending on where our spiritual alignment is at the moment, where our moods are. What's the quote with Uncle Andrew in the last battle about you see what you... Right. Yeah. The We posted it on the Instagram the other day. <laughs> right. Um, what For what you see and what you hear depends a lot on where you're standing. It also depends on what kind of person you are. Yes. Right. And so what kind of person you are and where you are in your own development. At some points, I need to be told, hey, just chill. You're not that big of a deal. And at other points, I need to say, no, I need to hear you do have something to say. Stand up and own your space and that type of encouragement. And so much of where I am and what message I need to hear depends on my moods and the state of my digestion, or maybe my audience, or maybe I'm in the audience, right? And so that's the, that's the beauty of, the, and maybe that's why the truths of, of the gospel, right? The, the truths that are trying to be communicated to us through these fairy tales can't just be written out because then you can you 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 take that factoid and you apply it in indiscriminately through to every context and it doesn't fit in every context which is what we talked about shift doing he took at not a tame lion and tried to sacrificing all other virtues all other right truths yeah. to that one superordinate is that so, a word well so what's interesting when you said that i thought Aslan, not only was he different to every to the different kids and how he appeared to them, but and we talked about this before. But every book, he's a different lion. He interacts with people there. He shows up at different parts of the story in ways that had you just read one and said, "Where is he going to show up in number two? You would have gotten it dead wrong. And so, if if I tell you, give me three sentences to tell me exactly how Aslan's going to interact in this book, you couldn't do it. And in the same way, if I ask you to like. It isn't comprised in just a factoid, in just a paragraph. It's something that's so much bigger than that. And so it's cool to think that this story that shows so many different sides, uh, an infinite number of sides to this being still resonates. Every single time you set the book down, you're like, that is Aslan. Yeah. You, you knew it was him, even though it was different, yeah. but it was still good. His quality, his unchangeableness. Right, it's the if you use the unchanging and forever type yeah. uh, categories, that's for him, and that's in his goodness. But the way that applies has to yield to our changeableness because we're different every time we approach Aslan, and and it's not that he's changing; it's that he's comprehensive. the The sphere has 
infinite faces. Yeah. Depending on the way that we approach it. All right. We, Sarah number three. We, I, we got so far off on that one. I don't even know don't if know. we were talking. About I hope Sarah feels satisfied with that conversation. Okay. Another for fun question. This is probably not what you're looking for for your podcast because you guys delve into um, much more interesting philosophical stuff. But another fun question I had was what character do you identify with most? Um, and it can be animal or human and why. And if you say Eustace, I agree. <laughs> this, she, this, she's talking to me or she's talking to you? <laughs> probably both. I think, I think probably uh, more. Not a beaver after our discussion this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Can't relate with that. <laughs> Let's see. This is difficult because, you know, depending on where I am, I'm sure I... I that's these these books have such a breadth of characters that I'm sure each moment, each mood you're in can apply. Yeah. So I know that I'm Eustace, the well actually in me, you know, put the well actually in quotes, and that's even right there. I had to explain it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Pre or post dragon, just depends on. The day. <laughs> yeah, it depends on if I've gone through some suffering and had a lion cut a tear in my heart. <laughs> let's see think of some characters i am not really in <laughs> hold on hold on real fast i'm wondering if we should do this for each other since it's hard to okay do no that's right, that's right okay yeah let's you you go first since you had this idea oh no uh we've 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 mentioned this a little bit like you see a lot of uses in yourself mm -hmm. diggery yeah um those are those are the two that come fastest to mind mm -hmm. which are wonderful illusions to make <laughs> Yeah, you've definitely got a lot more Peter. No, I'm not sure. See, that's, yeah, this is difficult. You do have more Peter in, in you than I think. I mean, that's one of the things that I admire about you is you're put, when you're put in difficult situations and you need to take charge, I think you, with reluctance, not reluctance because you don't want to, but I think you have the confidence. You have an ability to take charge in a way that I really admire. I think as far as, let's see, later books, you, you're more Tyrion than I am as well. I, I, I love Tyrion. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a little over the top emotionally sometimes. I'm a little over <laughs> <laughs> Just ask my wife. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm more, well, no, I'm not going to talk about it. No, him. hold on. No, but Diggory. Diggory. Where do you see yourself in Diggory? Because I, I see that, it, but I it's think, kind of from a story feels perspective. I don't know if I'm okay. like, this moment made me think you're... I think it's in the defensive know-it-all type well, aspect. And obviously, <laughs> that's, really, that's really like demeaning and, and self-critical, I guess. But I could say that. But remember when we talked about him, you mentioned that I kept saying he was a good boy. Maybe I, maybe I had one hand, you know, patting myself <laughs> on the back every time I said that. Like, don't worry, you're a good boy. No, because I think later in, in the same way, like, Peter is the guy... Diggory, by the end, I mean, he's the human yeah. from the other world that started this all off, and they're having dinner at his house, and and he he's he has that Professor Kirkpatrick that um, understand the limits of logic and the assumptions you can and can't make, and and leave space and humility for the unknown and what is to and want to know it all, desire all that. I I feel like all of that is things I see in you, in your desire to. 
have all the knowledge to learn everything you can learn, but also you've you've you're always able to make room for humility. You're always able to make room for uh, what you don't know and what you can't comprehend yet. Yeah, I'm a, I appreciate that you've used that in the longitudinal entire character of Diggory, because the curiosity maybe I do ring the bell a little too much. You know, it's like I want to know this thing and bring in the White Witch to the to the world. Sort let's of thing. let's leave the Green Witch. <laughs> yeah. <the> <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Wait, which one? Sorry. Colored of which? White Witch is uh, the Chronicle, or sorry, Lion the Western Wardrobe. Green Witch is Silver Chair. Silver Chair, but Jada is. Jadis is the White Witch. Also, oh, yeah, she becomes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, let's see. Any other characters that we, that are like real, like animal characters? What what kind of animal characters? I'm a little reapy cheapy. You are. I jump in just as like, I guess it's the, like, I don't know, jump in on like a principal basis, even when you might logically be like, no, nah, it's probably not. the. <laughs> you don't need to go into the dark island, you know? Yeah. Or not. Yeah. He just almost sometimes it was like adventure for adventure's sake. Yes. I think I mentioned that before that you're like Reaper Cheap. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. Was um, Reaper Cheap ADHD? We don't know. <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> <laughs> He's like uh, Lancelot from, from the Monty Python Holy Grail. <laughs> Um, other animals. Let's see. Not the beaver. <laughs> no. What about Jewel? Who's the more Jewel-like? Not yeah. You're more Jewel and Tyrion. Well, that's those are the highest compliments you could ever give somebody. I'm Runewit. Yeah. Um, there's other centaurs, but I can't remember what their names are. Trumpkin. Trumpkin. Let's not forget about our friend Trumpkin. Trumpkin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more like Trumpkin. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah, I see that. All right, there I'm, you go, I'm, Trump, Sarah. I'm Trumpkin, I think, after I've been uh, picked up by a lion in his mouth, maybe. No, I, 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 I could only hope. It's like I'm still longing for that type of experience and then terrified that I might have that type of experience eventually. <laughs> All right, next up, we've got Calvin from Utah. Hey, Dan and Alex. This is Calvin, longtime listener, first-time caller to the program. I wanted to send in some of my thoughts about something that I think is incredibly important and incredibly beautifully represented or taught or, or shown in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it has to do with my two favorite characters, Edmund and Eustace. Um, and it has to do with wrapping my head around or my feelings around my heart around the apparent contradiction in Christianity between the fact that we are, we're taught that we have so much value, sons and daughters of God, so much intrinsic worth, and the fact that we are all abject sinners and committing treason against our God, who has done nothing but love us um, day in and day out. Edmund and Eustace, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in both of their cases, you're given a very intimate, intrinsic perspective. Uh, you're not just shown their actions, you're shown their thoughts. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you hear all of Edmund's grumblings, all of his, you know, Peter will get what he deserves, and all of his justifications. And then in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you actually get diary entries from Eustace, and you see him justifying his selfish and greedy behavior. Um, and in both cases, you can both see 
how these are just kind of childish things that they're doing and that they are bad. And when you're honest with yourself and you read through them in, in the simple way that Lewis presents them, and so you see them as, you know, just flawed children, but at the same time, one is guilty of treason and worthy of death, according to the great magic on the stone table. And the other is equivalent to a greedy dragon um, that deserves nothing more than to live alone and die in a cave. And both are saved by Aslan through a, a painful, but in the end, beautiful and liberating process of atonement. And it helps me feel more deeply what it means to need the atonement, to repent, to be sanctified in a way that has always been hard for me to explain or to describe, but I really feel it in the stories of Edmund and Eustace, and it really helps me know how I should feel it in my own life. And I think it's the reason I love the Chronicles of Narnia the most. Thank you, Calvin. Yeah, I think if uh, if we're using those reasons that that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the books, I think that's an indication of success. I think what he said where he says just it helps him feel more deeply the necessity of the atonement. Calvin's identifying something that I think the materialist takes for granted. Like, what do we deserve without Jesus? If you're going to take that, what is life? And it's such this pessimistic, awful, and, I, and this is, you know, I experience this existential dread pretty frequently. Had a little bout with it this morning. It's, it's something that maybe, maybe I'm ringing the bell too much. Maybe I have my feet uh, straddling that line of, of Dark Island a little too, too frequently. It, but where are we? Sometimes you'll hear somebody from this, the, the, the camp of scientism say or try to convince you that the materialistic world and what you see is what there is and there's nothing. When you're dead, you're dead and you're annihilated and that sort of thing. And they'll try to paint it in this with this rose-colored paintbrush as like beautiful or something. And I just, I can never, they can say those words how, however poetically they want that uh, an existence without God is just fine. And, you know, the nihilistic existentialism of just like, you make your own meaning and, the, and morality is relative and nothing really matters. But the, within that, you can find your own meaning, meaning and really become the person that you want to be. And it's like, I'm sorry. It's just like you took all the teeth out of it. So now I can't chew any of the food. Like, I, I, it doesn't have any, there's no um, sanctuary for my, my heart in that paradigm. I can say those same things too, but it will never penetrate what I'm really longing for. And I, and I think I've spent a little too much time trying to find the meaning in, in meaninglessness. And yeah, I think there's good practices. And I, and I think before you even find your faith, life itself is worth it. Existence is worth it. I believe that. But what does existence, if it doesn't have any personhood to it, what can it possibly owe you? And the answer is nothing. 
and nothing is terrifying. And I know it might sound when I use that word, word terrifying that, oh, now I, I'm inventing this space where I can run and pretend that there's a, you know, a, a grandpa in heaven or a dad in heaven that's just going to protect me from all the scary things. And that's a wish fulfillment type experience. But I don't I, like the other way is a wish fulfillment too, to, to yield and to be humble and to say, I don't know everything. And how can I experience what is existence? How can you even define that? Oh, the big, big bang or whatever. And I, but no, I believe in the big bang, but what causes the big bang? Where, where, where's all this? Even the scientist has to come down to a foundation of unknowingness. Eventually we are all in that same existential confusion, maybe not confusion, but just dependence. We exist despite ourselves. We didn't will ourselves into existence. Who were we before we existed? We couldn't have willed anything. And so these questions and the dumbing down and just saying, I just think it's a cop-out. I feel like it's a short circuit to trying to understand things. And the person who wants to have an answer for everything, and believe me, I know what that feels like. I'm feeling it right now. I'm trying to explain away the, un the unexplainable right now. I know what that's like. And to try to get to that point where it's like, no, there's nothing. When you die, you die. You're just gone. It's like, oh, you're sure? You have no basis for that surety. And the type of personality that is constantly trying to know the foundation and the answer for everything gets to that point. You have to yield. We're already in this existence, this state of yielding. We're already just thrown into the, the water. It's just whether or not you want to recognize it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Your actual place in the universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so bringing up like Eustace's dependence and Edmund's dependence, and aren't we all sinners? We're all in that state of dependence in either God or nothing. And we have less justification for nothing than we do for God because we know that there is something. I see you right now. You exist. I'm thinking about it, therefore I exist. Where does this existence come from? From something. And if you want to boil it down to just that, it's either nothing or it's something. Well, there's something. And then if there's something, then what are we? What are we? Where do we fall? And Calvin talking about that, I just I felt like God having this, this plan to turn intelligence into exalt it to something greater than it was. How you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't, the physics doesn't even work that way. If you want to use that analogy, you can't lift yourself up. If God's plan is to make us more like him, it requires that he descend and lift us up. And you see that you feel that more than you see it in Aslan. I love how Calvin points out that the sins the errors that these two little boys make are so relatable. They're not wicked little boys. They're nasty little boys. They were trying to be better than their sister or a little prideful or whatever, but they're, they're so small and insignificant. Yeah. And yet their reward is Edmund ends up in the castle of the White Witch and Eustace ends up as a dragon with a ring around his arm where he's just in continual pain. Yeah. And... What did they deserve? Did they deserve that? Well, deserve's a really difficult word. Yeah. But what he's trying to show, I think, is that all of us are in this exact same position 
we have our nastiness, we have our weaknesses, and the reward for that is nothingness. It's awful, it's terrible, it's terrifying, exactly what you're talking about. But because of Aslan, because of his blood, we can be redeemed. And, and that's, that's what I feel like. That's the way, way he's talking about it, is that these stories, it's so easy to say they don't deserve that. And God felt the same way, which, why, which is why he sent his son mm-hmm. so that they didn't have, that, have to go through that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like the green witch. What do you have? Yeah. If in our imaginations, we can come up with something. I mean, you don't really need more than logic to start on that path of desire. So get good at logic, get good at the scientific method. Be careful of the scientism and the magician work of like thinking you know because you came to a conclusion. Oh, this reminds me of something that I was thinking the other day. So um, so like it, if you've ever heard of the fallacy of the single cause, it, it's like this. So why do zebras have stripes? Uh, well, <laughs> what, what have you heard? <laughs> they say that it's so they blend in so they're not eaten by lions. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's also, um, I think it's Robert Sapolsky. He's the, he wrote a book called Behave. I think this is where he, because he was a, a behaviorist and he studied animals in Africa and everything. Uh, mostly, mostly apes, but he, um, but he also has this experience where they're, they're observing zebras and trying to understand which, and I think this is where they came up with that idea of, you know, they painted one with red and then they had a hard time finding, or they had to paint one with red because they had a hard time following individual zebras. They're like, oh, I bet a lion has that hard time as well. And so they figured it out through science, right? They use the scientific method. They even their own experience, which is part of it. You know, that all data is data. And they come to this conclusion. They have stripes so that lions don't see them. Well, well, recently they've discovered that flies, and there are a lot of flies in the savannah, that flies don't like landing on really harsh uh, brightness changes like black and white. And so zebras are landed on by flies like one-tenth the amount that like a wildebeest is landed on. And so, aha, why do they have stripes? Because flies don't, won't want to land yeah. on them. Yeah, to protect them from the flies. Oh, it looks, looks like you were wrong about the hiding from the lion. Both of those are problematic to me because if that in that case, why didn't the wildebeest and all the other ones end up striped? Okay, so they don't like flies so either. Absence of evidence, evidence <laughs> of absence. You're right. You're right. I mean, we, this is the problem with thinking that a discovery means you know everything. This is the Mount Stupid of the Dunning Kruger effect. I read one little blog post or something. Uh, I listened to one podcast about two guys talking about C.S. Lewis, and now I know everything. <laughs> you know, we don't even know right or i've read this many books about c.s lewis and all his books and so i'm an expert about it no i'm not like when you are learning when you're in the process and you finally get that satisfaction that that learning's fun right it's difficult but there's like this satisfaction this ego satisfaction and you can get addicted to that and it can feel really good and you can say aha now i'm the one that knows and i'm sorry but that perspective that you're having is because you've scaled mount stupid and that's where you're standing you know the socratic method which is socrates using this question process of trying to understand what's going on he was trying to disprove the oracle of delphi that told one of his friends that he was the smartest person alive and he was like no i'm not here i'll show you i don't know this and this and this and this because he was the only person in athens who had gotten to the other side of mount stupid which feels like a depression into a valley 
right? If you're going to scale a mountain, you might look at a mountain from a distance and you see this mountain. You're like, oh, look, that mountain, let's go hike it. That's easy. Let's go hike that mountain. You get to the foot of the mountain, you're like, oh, this might be a little harder. And you start climbing and it's like, what? We've been hiking for hours and where are we? And you can, that's the process of learning. It doesn't feel like knowing. The process of learning expands your mind to the possibility of knowing where you start to see your, your, where you fit in the perspective and you're so small. So be careful when you find reasons, causes, you discover why zebras have stripes. It's possible that both of those things are true at the same time, and it's possible that neither of them are true. All we can know is what we have evidence for, and we weigh it, and we never get to that point of, I know, I finished the race, I'm there. I hope Calvin appreciates how customized our response was to his <laughs> love of mountain climbing in the outdoors. That's true. Okay, That's so true. well done. How many times have I turned him down <laughs> for going on a mountain hike because I'm lazy? <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, we have uh, some thoughts from Tracy from Las Vegas. This one is from The Silver Chair, and it's in Chapter 2. When Aslan said to Jill, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. That takes me to the scripture, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I just, I love how C.S. Lewis managed to intertwine so much scripture through everything. So we're reading the Bible without knowing that we're reading the Bible. Weaving his spell. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I want to point out, I like Tracy, like across the spectrum of different ways to engage with the book club, it sounds like some of the comments that she sent in were very tied to the Bible. She could, she could see the, ver the Bible verses that are, that are being talked about in the book. And I thought that was a cool way to be going through the books and to be tying it to her Bible study. Yeah, she's using it as a Bible study uh, aid. I love that because it's the, it. you can use the books that way and she's obviously well-versed in the Bible. And I think making those associations, you can almost, yeah, crack the code of what C.S. Lewis is doing. He was, he was very well-versed in the Bible. And so that type of analysis, I think, is, uh, I think it's really valuable. And I know that some people want to be really careful about uh, what level you put the value of certain books. Yeah. You want to have the sola scriptura type attitude, which I kind of do, where you have the, the scriptures on the top of everything and, and don't even fall into the temptation of comparing any other book to the Bible. But the Bible shows us a, a certain amount of breadth of inspiration and, and applicability. And, um, and I think that to use narnia as a way to access the bible in a more understandable way to you i think that would that would please c.s lewis a lot yeah and then her comment about uh you you would not have called to me unless i had been calling to you what does that make you think of well it gets me kind of in this loop of determinism you know if i'm going to be honest not that i disagree with her i, I and or aslan because she's quoting aslan right it's interesting. There's this mindset that uh, it seems contradictory. And these are those moments where it's like, okay, I'm, I'm at that barrier of what logic can get me to, uh, the barrier of the numinous and understanding what that is. But we can never understand what's beyond our understanding without dumbing it down for our understanding. And so there's this process. You get philosophers that they conclude that we're determined. Or I, or it's, there's the atomism. All of your cells and the atoms in your body already have certain trajectories and they're going to act and play out and your brains are just 
electrons, neurotransmitters, and synapses that are creating pathways that are all determined by the initial motion. And you can get to this logical conclusion, therefore everything's determined. And it's just going to play out the way that, that it's going to play out. The fuse is lit and she's just going to burn to a pop. I think getting yourself is it, to that place mentally is good if you're using it as an evidence for the shortcomings of logic. Where it's like, okay, look at where my logic can get, to, get me to. And yet, I have obvious evidence that that's not the conclusion. You have like this Zeno's paradoxes. And they're all basically this, the same sort of idea. But you, you're shooting an arrow from the bow to the target. And before it gets to the target, it has to go halfway, right? And understanding space as a continuum, then it has to go another halfway. Well, how many halfways are there? Infinite. Infinite. So in order for an arrow to go a destination, it has to go infinite destinations. Now, quantum theory kind of solves that problem by quantizing space and that, you know, when an electron moves from, this is what a quantum leap is from one energy level to the next, it actually never exists in between. And so if you quantize space, then you can actually have finite space that doesn't, isn't infinitely divisible. But quantum theory, even to the people who came up with it, they knew it was illogical. They only <laughs> came up with it, not because the math said, but because their observations said. Or their the math said despite their logical understanding of it, right? We see motion. Zeno's paradox says motion is impossible because in order to move any distance, you have to move infinite distances. That's impossible. And yet, here's my motion. I'm moving. So logic will take you to this point where you come to this conclusion, ah, our behavior is determined. And yet nobody believes that about themselves. They just want to believe that about everybody else, right? It's like moral relativism. I don't believe, nobody believes moral relativism for themselves. I mean, they want there to be no, mor no morality for themselves so they can do whatever they want. But they don't believe that you should be able to do anything, every, anything you want to them, right? So they don't believe moral relativism for themselves. They just believe that Every, everything else, all the responsibility is morally relativistic. And then they, they get to operate as the only person who has, you know, objective authority within that morally relative space. So, and in the same way, determinism is, we want to push it out to everyone around right, us. Right, we want to say that everything else is determined or use it to, to excuse our bad behavior and then still f feel like we're acting out of free will. You can say, oh, that person was just doing that uh, you're, you're a determinist and like, well, then why are you so like energetic in your explanation? Why are you trying to persuade me as if I'm persuadable? Because if I'm determined, then it doesn't matter. You're just acting. And we'll see in, in, uh, some books coming up what the inevitable, uh, conclusion is of the moral determinist. It, it did make me, this, this part in kind of a positive way made me think of the quote that you shared before about the reason why there, it doesn't seem like there's a plan is that all is planned. All is planned, and yeah. and we'll get to this with this with the space trilogy teaser. Yeah, <laughs> but but just that there is a grand plan and a, and a grand design, and that the only reason why we do get to a point where we feel like we can reach out to Aslan or reach out to Christ is because He loved us first. He's been reaching out the whole time, and so that is accessible to us. So. Not in from, from a determinist lens, I guess, 
but just in, yeah, because he set the plan in motion and he created this pathway so we can reach out. Right. So as you're, as you're philosophically butting against these deterministic conclusions or these materialistic conclusions, your observations, your experience, your scientific method use, that actually is the same solution, right? Don't just come to these, this end and think, I've got, zebras have stripes for this reason. Therefore, I'm going to lock that away in my diary and then never address it again. No, keep addressing all of your assumptions. Everything needs to be readdressed because we are babies. We're so small at the foot of this mountain and the process of climbing up it and, and being brought up, lifted yeah. up, requires that we yield. And so that, I think, is, that's the... That's one of the things that I feel so strongly through this. And I, and I love that Aslan says he, he's calling, but they, they're still responsible. It's like that prayer thing. Why do, we call, why do we pray to a God who already knows everything we need? Because we, he's letting us participate. He's not just coming and lifting us. He's like a, like a good parent who sees the child in distress and says, come to me, then I can hold you. If you go rush and, and scoop up your child, without giving them any responsibility in the process. And obviously that amount of responsibility depends on your child's awareness and ability. But you'll enable them to never seek you when they need to. So you let them play a small role in it. They come to you a little bit, and then you pick them up. And, and God uses that parenting tactic with us, gives us a chance to exercise our volition our will and our desire. And that's when he lifts us up. Tracy too. Yep. From Voyage of the Dawn Treader in chapter seven, it really um, made it real to me. Eustace was peeling off the dragon skin and no matter what he did, it was never enough. Aslan had to be the one to peel the skin. Just like we can't earn our salvation. There's nothing that we can do. Um, took me to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. I like this, you know, the experience in, in Narnia and then the application in the Bible. And these are not the only two that Tracy sent us. I'd like to see her notes because it's probably this really cool uh, study resource. All of these allusions and, and cross-referencing. I, I think it's, I really appreciate it. Um, Eustace and the Dragon. As far as a, a really cool illustration from a story to show this principle of Eustace trying to take the skin off himself mm -hmm. and then Aslan doing that work um, and how it's just, it was a total dip, different level of depth in, in how deep it had, it pierced. He felt like it, I can't remember. He said something it about hurt. what it was straight to his heart. Or yeah. yeah. Um, it was a to it was a completely different experience than he could otherwise have created for himself uh, for Aslan to come and strip off that skin. And then from the scripture she read, just, just about how recognizing that that is impossible unless it is done by Christ. Therefore, we have nothing to boast of. Yeah. Our works, our faith, are things that we offer to Christ out of gratitude for what he has done. Yeah. 
And I think that's a powerful, cool reminder. Yeah. I mean, we just talked about the the child coming to the parent. And I think the the different axes in the Cartesian coordinate system, right? You know, yeah. the, the child's moving laterally and it's the parent that lifts up. And and seeing that as well in what God does is he he can lift us up. We we do have responsibility, but we can't save ourselves. Our our motion is lateral, what yeah. we decide to do and and our and our works and to help make ourselves change our, our hearts to a place where we actually like goodness, because that's not a given. Or we, we want salvation. We want to be in the presence of God. And sometimes we might, might not want that type of subordination. We have to yield to it. And so there is, there is responsibility on our part, but it's not our works that are lifting us. It's God. Yeah, I like that. All right, next up we have Christine from Las Vegas. I love how in chapter 11, when Aslan is talking to Susan and he tells her, you have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. You are brave again. This one hits home. In the middle of my heart, I have needed my Savior to breathe on me and give me the faith to be brave and to trust him fully. And when I do, he has given me that strength over and over again. This one's interesting to me, and it reminds me of um, in Luke 22, uh, when the Savior's talking to Peter and tells him he's going to deny him, mm-hmm. he says, uh, first he says, Peter, or is it Simon, Simon, um, the devil has sought to sift you as wheat, or, or something like that. And then he says, I have prayed for you. And you've been talking about prayer a little bit and why we pray. But Jesus praying for us. Do you feel like, I mean, I think of Aslan breathing on Susan to give her strength, to give her courage. Uh, What does it make you think of as far as, does that us praying to God versus Christ praying on our behalf? Is that confusing enough for you? (laughs) God is a personal God. In every way that we understand personhood almost comes from that source. Jesus crying at the tomb of Lazarus. And it's like, well, how can you be moved by something? How can you, you know, some of the creeds say something to the effect of impassable or not without emotions. And I think that's a misunderstanding of, that's it's kind of like a dumbing down of the character of God so that we can understand it. Because, but you can see that you're taking exaltation, you're bringing it down to mortality and, and thinking that the more, what you have in mortality is true. Whatever, whatever is true about the character of God or the personality and, and personhood of God, our emotions are what's pale in comparison. There's passion. We might say passion, but when we use that word, if we're using it as, a, as this diminutive form of what our emotion, our moods, the state of our digestion, that is not changing God's attitude toward us. But if we th- think of passion as being something like with our, the, all the energy of our heart, yeah, I think you can apply that, apply that to God. We, the, what we experience is, is merely the shadowlands compared to what he's experiencing with us. And that breath, the old, um, like Greek, and, and Latin, the, this word, word breath and soul, we're all one word. 
the idea of that what you are as a human and then that breathing that you can think of the word inspiration being filled with the character and personality of God. And therefore you have the creative capacity that God has and that inspiration, you know, respiration sort of thing. And so when God is breathing on us, it's like he's immersing us in his personhood. You can think the Holy Ghost, something that is his character and almost, almost like this protection, it's lifting uh, Jill across the water and to safety. She would have died otherwise anyway, but both Jill and Eustace are being carried on this breath. And, you know, obviously this is all very symbolic, but I think that putting our minds in that kind of state of how is God helping us know him? Right. We can't know him if not by through revelation, because we can't like find him. Where is he? Are we going to go into outer space, finally reach Mars and go out there and look around? Is God here? Nope, not here. I guess, guess there's no God, you know? And that's like one of the things that C.S. Lewis says is it's like a character in Shakespeare trying to not knowing who Shakespeare is and saying he must not exist or trying to, or, or maybe in Don Quixote, I think is a story that kind of references this directly where the, the author and the characters kind of be, become intermingled a little bit, right? But the, in order for that to happen, the author has to write it in. It's, that doesn't happen because like, the a character in the book looked around a bush and found the author and so that the that direction of where things are coming from i think is really important all right and our last uh comment here this is actually in email format and this is from terry in south carolina loved your comment about responsibility and freedom related to brie without the tarkhan on his back i.e that he had forgotten how to take responsibility or how far he, he could really stretch himself without someone forcing him until the lion. I think there's a parallel here with Shasta's first experience riding a horse that isn't Bree. He also has freedom, but he doesn't know how to use it. Unlike when he was riding Bree, Shasta has the reins, but doesn't know how to use them to guide the horse. He doesn't know how to take charge or responsibility of his direction or where he needs to go. Again, until the lion. Yeah, you could tell she's, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe an English teacher. She's got, she's really organized in the way that she writes. She, there's a couple of emails from her. And she even has that, like, that closing line or that thematic line, until the lion. And I think that's really powerful. I yeah. I, yeah, I hadn't made that comparison between Brie Shasta. and Shasta in, in that parallel juxtaposition. And I think that's, it helps you understand both Brie better and Shasta better in both of those kind of trials that they're experiencing. And I also, I think it reminds me of the journey, the growth journey that they're on since mm -hmm. we're all on a growth journey. Yeah. And how Brie wasn't, or sh sorry, Shasta wasn't ready to ride a real horse when he left his adopted father's house and he had Brie. And Brie had to kind of gr had to grow into uh, a horse that understood what it was like to push himself with in a situation where he has freedom instead of someone on his back. And so Shasta wasn't ready when he first got on that horse and, you know, eventually it just ambles off in the forest and didn't yeah. like him very much. <laughs> but I, yeah, I just think it's cool that even though they weren't prepared, they were still able to accomplish their mission and accomplish the journey, which I am not prepared today for what I'm going to face in 10 years. 
But I'm hoping that if my trust and faith is placed correctly, that as I work and go across those deserts and, and, and confront those situations, that I will be prepared when the time comes to lead the horse. So I don't know. It just, for me, there's a lot of personal application I like. There. Yeah. Uh, what what kind of came to mind for me and, and for anybody who has a background in child development and, and education, there's a, one of the, one of the people you study is Vygotsky and you get the, the scaffolding and the zone of proximal learning and that you, you kind of, one of the things that a teacher is, is one of the things that a teacher does to help a student, you can use this little um, phrase is I do, we do, you do where the teacher does it themselves and then you do it together with the student and then you let the student go off and do it themselves. It's, it's kind of funny and everybody kind of knows this little asterisk or this caveat to it, which is I do, we do, do we do, we do, I do, we do, we do, we do, I do, we do, we do, we do, we do, you do, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that process is, is a lot more labor and time intensive than you might think. It's not just like I show you how to do it, let's do it together and then there you go that there's this long process of scaffolding and the zone of proximal learning is just beyond the ability of the student because that's how you get them to reach into skills that they don't have. It's in those moments where it's like, oh, this is harder than I expected. And it always will be. If it's not, you wouldn't need a teacher to help you get there. Learning is always harder. It's difficult. So I, that juxtaposition of Brie and Shasta kind of put my mind in that place. I love it. All right, so... That's a wrap for our first book club participant uh, episode. So we hope you guys enjoyed a little bit of a change up on the format. We loved hearing from you guys. This was really fun for us. And to just to hear all the different perspectives uh, that you bring to get outside of just ourselves talking. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to participate. Um, we publish our podcast through Spotify. And so if you're listening through Spotify or if you want to, that each episode has... A little question you can answer some of them I, we put up polls that you can participate in uh it's i have text messages from friends we've been interacting a little bit on social media through instagram and there's been a lot of participation there and however you'd like to participate is is welcome so uh thank you so much for being our being in our book club we hope you'll continue with us as always uh next week we will be starting the Out of the Silent Planet, chapters one through seven, and read it. This one's going to be good. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.